This morning, we're going to start out with a little game. Uh, so I'll invite you, if you are sitting next to some people, to just look over, uh, to, to work through these questions with them around you. Uh, if you're an introvert and you really don't want to talk to anybody, it's okay. I'll give you a pass this time. We're going to play a little game called Would You Rather. And if you aren't familiar with Would You Rather, it's basically, you have two options. A quite simple decision. And you just pick which one you would like, which one you would prefer, and then you explain briefly your choice. So, for instance, would you rather be able to reverse one decision you make every day, you do something stupid that, you know, if you're like me, this happens pretty frequently, or would you be able to, would you like to be able to stop time for 10 seconds every day? So you can either reverse one decision that you made, and you're like, oh, mulligan, I need to do that again. Or you can stop time for 10 seconds. Now, the, the, the whole point of this game is for you to discuss. So turn to your neighbor, tell them which one you would rather, and we'll reconvene in just a second. psychological test that your answers will we'll have a little chart at the end that reviews your answers and tells you just, just how messed up you are. So, the next one. Would you rather yourself win $50,000 or would you rather your best friend win $500,000? My best friend wins Shouting from 20 feet away. So either you walk up to them and you put your nose on them, or you just yell at them for ever. 
How many of you would do the nose ones? I actually knew that about all of you, so that's cool. Um, all right, last one. Would you rather be known by your friends as the happiest person in the All right. We often feel like we are faced with these choices, these impossible, you know, kinds of poles between two decisions. A lot of times, as in, would you rather be the happiest or the holiest? Maybe these are a false dichotomy. Maybe they're not a choice between two things. Uh, holiness is a word that has drawn kind of a bad rap in our current uh, vernacular. To be sanctimonious, to be self-righteous, or, or a holy roller. Does anyone say holy roller? Is that a bowling team, right? That's all. Uh, all carry incredibly negative connotations. In our world, to, to be seen as holier than, than thou is, is to be at best a killjoy, like you're just not that fun to be around, and at worst you're some sort of hypocrite or bigot. And for many of us, I think we're so afraid of being associated with the really ugly demonstrations of people who think they're holy, like you think of those people that are uh, outside of churches or outside of different places with their signs uh, saying God hates you and that kind of nonsense. I remember uh, when I was in college, I went to visit some of my friends at Oklahoma State, and they had this preacher who he thought his calling from God was to stand on a corner and yell at people. And so he would, every, every young girl that would walk by, he would call them a whore. And, and, and young men that would walk by, he would, he would tell them how sinful and broken they were. And he thought this was his call from God. And so me and a couple of my friends thought we had met Jesus, and this guy looked nothing like him, so we determined that we wanted to uh, shut him up. And despite, like, you know, I have these up here, despite my, my immediate inclinations to just fight the guy, we decided to take a, a tact that maybe Jesus would take. And so we, we tried to just have a conversation with him. And it was the weirdest thing. When we talked to him on the side, he was the most normal guy I'd ever met. It, it was a complete turn of face. And we're like, hey man, have you read the Bible? Have you met Jesus? Because he certainly didn't do what you're doing. Why do you think that that is your calling in life? Why do you stand in this, this culture, in this college, where people maybe are already prone to think Jesus is this terrible person? And why do you basically confirm all of their suspicions? Why? And he just, he, he really didn't have a great answer. So it's not like this beautiful conversation. He was just like, oh, this is what God's told me to do. And I was like, okay. Well, we serve a different God. And I think sometimes our associations with holiness kind of run along these lines. We see that, and like, you know what? Whatever team that is, I don't want to be on that team. In the passage we are, we'll return to later, Peter invites us. He says, you are to be holy as, as your Lord Jesus was holy. So what do we do with that? The Bible is saying, be holy. And it's pulling, us, it's pulling us towards this trajectory. But everything in our society says holiness is just not that fun. <laughs> How are we to seek holiness in a world where it'd be easier not to? How do we pursue holiness when, frankly, it sounds kind of boring? 
C.S. Lewis, we'll, we'll, we'll quote a lot from Lewis today, so just to, to prep you on that. He says of holiness, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Well, first, for today, I, I want us to be, behold true holiness. I want us to just see it, plain and simple before our eyes. And so I want to invite us today to contemplate Jesus, to behold him in wonder and in awe, and to feel ourselves embraced and beckoned towards his beautiful peace. And then I think we need to start clearing the grass on holiness. Let's, let's figure out where is this, where is our life in God's holiness? Where do those things intersect? So if you would, turn with me over to John 8. Uh, the scripture will not be on the screen, it's just a little bit longer story. So if you have a Bible around you, I'd like you to turn to it. John 8, we have this beautiful story. Kind of interrupts the flow of John's gospel. It seems like it was put here, uh, maybe in a different setting, but it's 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 this nice, uh, tight picture of, of really who Jesus is. So I, I want to go through the story line by line, just pulling out some of the details here and there, and then I, I want to challenge us towards a couple of things. So we'll start here in verse. Uh, it's actually starts at the end of chapter seven, so we'll start there. Then each of them went home. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. And so starting in verse 2, the text tells us that Jesus went to the temple early in the morning, sitting down to teach. And this is so significant. Jesus is at the temple, the place where the Israelites had built in order for them to meet with God. The place that in Ezekiel, where God's glory, his very presence departs. Now Jesus, God in the flesh, has returned to the temple. All the promises of the exile that God would come back to his people are really being fulfilled right now as Jesus is sitting in the temple teaching his people. He's teaching about the arriving kingdom of God from the Jewish scriptures. <coughs> the text says that all the people are coming to him. There's a crowd, a congregation, assembled there. And as Jesus is teaching in the temple, this brief moment of shalom, where all the promises of God are really being fulfilled, as we often do, the men burst from the outside and kind of ruin the whole scene. But it's what they're doing that provides our story today. These men burst in from the curtain, dragging a woman. She's hastily dressed, wearing little more than her outer garment. There are no shoes on her feet. Her hair covering is falling off the top of her head. And the men drag this woman, and they make her stand in front of Jesus. And in front of the whole assembled congregation that just minutes ago was listening to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. Now this woman dragged publicly in front of them. And the men make their accusation against the woman in verse 4. It says, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? The temple has become the courtroom. And Jesus, the teacher, was sitting down teaching the people, is now the judge. And verse 6 gives us insights into, uh, gives us the author's insights into the motivations of these men. Look at the first part of verse 6. They said this to test them, so that they might have some charge to bring 
against Jesus. You see, these men know that in the law of Moses, it says very clearly that if somebody's caught in adultery, presumably this woman was engaged to be married, and if she's caught in that act, she is to be stoned. Now, there's a couple problems here. The Jewish people are not an autonomous people. They cannot just do whatever they want. They are under Roman law. And so these men have concocted a scheme that really is quite brilliant. Because they know that Jesus is the kind of teacher that is faithful. He's faithful to the law. He, he's one who, who lives his life by the law of Moses. And so very clearly in Deuteronomy 22 it says, if you are caught in this sort of adultery, you are to be stoned. But the Roman law also says that only Romans can enact capital punishment. That to do anything otherwise is to risk being viewed as a subversive, as a rebel. And so Jesus stands with a quite remarkable, would you rather? Would you rather be faithful to the law and thus put yourself at risk with the Romans, or would you rather be unfaithful to the law and thus undermine your presence as a teacher of God? The Pharisees, the scribes, have developed this diabolical plan. Now Jesus, the judge, is seated on the judgment seat. Now all that remains is to hear the verdict. Guys, don't lose sight of this. I think we lose sight of this far too often. Jesus is brilliant. He is the most brilliant man who has ever lived. Gerard, Gerard Manley Hopkins says in the Sermon of Jesus, he was the greatest genius that ever lived. As Christ lived and breathed, so he reasoned and planned and invented acts of his own. And guys, here we see the genius of Jesus, the man wiser, more discerning, more beautiful than anyone who has ever lived, would press on every side, speak, give judgment. You have to pick. It's either this way or that way. There's only two options. What does he do? Look at the second part of verse 6. The men were asking him, they said, you must tell us, what, what do we do? Do we stone this woman or do we let her go? And Jesus bent down on the ground and began to write with his finger. What did he write? I have no idea. Plain and simple. I could write a lot of really good sermons filling in the blanks of what I think he wrote. What did he write? Well, we don't know. We're not told. And there are lots of reasonable assumptions. But in this culture, it, it, it's likely to assume that there may have been some, some standard cultural uh, things that they shared in common. So in this culture, it was customary in Roman courts for the judge to write down the sentence before reading it aloud. Now, imagine Jesus is bent down and writing on the ground. These men are so anxious to hear Jesus' verdict because they know they've got it. It's really a genius trap. And so they're leaning forward and they're trying to see, what's he writing? What's he writing? And they wait with bated breath. And they continue to question him. And they seem to say, Jesus, what do you say? What is the verdict? What, what are we to do? And he straightens up. And he says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See, these guys brought the law to Jesus. Jesus brings it right back to them. In Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 23, it says, Let the first witness be the one to throw the stone. 
And after he has spoken his word, what does Jesus do? He's right back working on his right hand. And upon hearing his words, one by one, those assembled to pronounce this verdict upon this woman and in turn to pronounce this verdict upon Jesus. Upon hearing his words, they begin to walk away. Upon hearing the verdict of the judge, from the oldest to the youngest, you can hear the thud of the stones falling not on this woman, but all around him. And Jesus is left all alone with the woman. He's still kneeling, and I think this is beautiful. He's been writing, and this woman is standing before him. The king of all the earth is standing before this woman who is clearly caught. And he asks her, and for the first time, don't miss this, for the first time, this woman is addressed as an actual person, because before, she was just a scheme in these men's, these men's plan. Before, she was an object, something to be used. You might be asking yourself, it does, in fact, take two to tango, if you will. Where's the man? That's what the whole story is telling us. It doesn't matter where the man is, because these men have concocted a scheme. They don't care anything for this woman, because they don't care anything for justice. All they want is to be rid of Jesus. And for the first time, this woman is addressed as an actual person. And he says to her, he says, woman, where are they? He uses that same term for his mother, so it's not disrespectful. Woman, where are those that have brought charges against you? Where are those? Has no one condemned you? And she, standing before the king of all the earth, in her guilt and in her shame, looks through her tear-blurred eyes says, no one. Nobody's here. And Jesus pronounces his final verdict. Then neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin. This, this is a brilliant story. And as in so many of the gospel stories, we behold the beauty of Jesus this is what I was trying to tell the preacher in Oklahoma State. I'm like, Jesus is way more beautiful. He's way better than all of your condemning words. Why don't you tell people that, Jesus? And when the schemes have tried to pit Jesus and er, justice and mercy against one another, Jesus is able to hold them in both hands. When it seems like the verdict is written in stone, Jesus writes new words in the dirt. You see, holiness is the harmony that holds mercy and justice together. Holiness is the simple purity that does not condone sin. He says to this woman, go and sin no more. The way that you're going is not the way to life and peace. Don't do it anymore. He doesn't condone sin, but neither does he condemn her. David Bentley Hart says of holiness, it possesses a quality of such lucid and incandescent simplicity and of such moral beauty that one feels in, in its presence simultaneously deeply happy and ashamed of one's own failure. Holiness. We, we behold this simplicity of God, this beauty, this integrity that holds all things together. 
Holiness is the otherness of God, that which is so completely beautiful, pure, awe-inspiring. It is God's resplendent light shining on us all. The glory, the heaviness, the weight of God's presence. You see, if we were to shine light on the dark corners of this room, the light, the darkness would no longer be there. And this is what holiness does. It doesn't just show the woman that she's broken and sinful. It doesn't just say, hey, you know how bad you are. No, when you shine a light in a dark room, and, and you shine it on the dark corners, it changes the darkness. It doesn't just show the darkness for what it is. It completely makes the darkness into something else. It makes it into light. And so Jesus here embodies the holiness of God as he shines a light on every corner of this story. He shines a light on the, these men's evil scheme. He shines a light on the brokenness of this woman. Jesus is holy through and through. And it's this holiness, it's this holiness that he is calling us to. Look at what his uh, friend and apostle says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be yourselves holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Is this, it seems like kind of a joke, right? God is speaking, and this is a quotation from Exodus. Be holy as I am holy. It's like, I, I can't go two minutes without getting in my own way. And you want me to be holy, but you're holy? This seems either like kind of a cruel prank, or, or, or even beyond that. It seems like you're holding us to a bit of an impossible standard. Like, like uh, you know, the old Snoopy cartoon where Lucy would hold the football and as Charlie Brown went to kick it, she would move it. And it seems like God is being cruel here, right? He's holding us to the standard that we could never possibly attain. But guys, the invitation to be holy as God is holy is not God taunting us. It's not him holding something back from himself and saying, you will never get here. It's an invitation. It's God saying, come here. Come close be holy as I am holy is an invitation to walk with Jesus and to learn to walk as he did. Now, I think in all of this, we have to clear up a couple of misconceptions about holiness. Because I think our problem is not that we don't think that we should be moving in this way towards the holiness of Jesus. It's just we don't know how, and we're not really even sure what it means to be holy. So, I want to clear up just two, I think, misconceptions that are commonly have. Our first mistake about holiness is that we think uh, what makes us happy is holy. Think about that for a second. We think what makes us happy is holy. We have sanctified our desires. And for most of us, we are the products of our own desires. We kind of do whatever we want to do at any moment. Uh, the art, every inch of marketing and thing that you interact on TV is trying to sort of express both a need, you need this, and also you should get it because you deserve it. And so we become consumers. 
We consume stuff. Just, I mean, we can buy, how many of you have the one-click buying set up on Amazon Prime? How many of you have made a, a purchase that you regret? Like, when did I order that? Just show it to my house. Some drone dropped it off. Amazing. But everything in our world is trying to, to, to almost feed this endless cycle of consuming. You need it? You want it? You can have it right now. We consume stuff. We, we just shop endlessly because there's this void that is created there. We consume people in order to satisfy our desires. We consume information about people. Uh, we, we gossip and we slander them. We, uh, some of us are struggling uh, in, in so many ways in our uh, sexual desires. And maybe you're sitting in front of a computer screen and consuming people from an anonymous distance. For others of us, this world tells us that, that sexuality and everything uh, is, is our desires are uh, completely, uh, are to be the definitive thing about us. We're told that we should have whatever we want. That doesn't stop with things. It's, it comes to people. The way of this world says that sexual experience is the end-all, be-all of our existence. We over-sexualize the world and we don't know what to do with it. The way this world says the commitment to your spouse only happens after you are married rather than starting before. We consume people. We consume chemicals, drink, and drugs. Some of us because we genuinely feel like we need it to escape very real pain. I've talked to so many people in that place and it's like this is the only medication that works. And I hope you'll see Jesus here today. For others of us, there's just always another party, always another frivolous night, and always another night to forget about what we should be doing, our very real calling that God is calling us towards. C.S. Lewis says about our desires, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Friends, we are far too easily pleased. When we give in to our own desire, Lewis is saying, we're just kids playing in the slums. We're, we're, we're making our food out of mud. And God is saying, I have a banquet prepared for you. There's so much more for you. So our problem, our first mistake about holiness is we think that what makes us happy is going to make us holy. No, we should just keep walking down that line. Second mistake with holiness is not only that we think we know best, we think we know what will make us happy, but we also think, like, if we're Christians, maybe you've been at this for a little while, maybe you just think holiness will just find you one day. That all of a sudden you will stumble into a vat of holiness and you will walk out face shining like Moses, people will see you and say, here comes the servant of the Lord, Jesus, because clearly they are holy. We think the holiness will just happen to us. Now, if I were to invite one of you up here to play this guitar that had never played a guitar before, how would that go? Would that be something we wanted to listen to? Would that be something...
pleasing to our ears? Probably not. Probably not a lot of savants sitting in the room, right? And so, the same with holiness. Now, this does not mean, this is the struggle that we walk so often, this does not mean that we earn our holiness or our salvation. It means that we live into the reality of it. For most of us, I would say we declare with our mouths that there's a God, but our lives don't really say that there's anything beyond us. And so where do we start? Where do we start living into this holiness, living out our our faith? First of all, I think you start. Lewis says again, he says, The helper, who is Christ, who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection, will also be delighted with the first feeble, stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. He goes on to say, God is easy to please, but hard, satisfied. So what I want to do this morning is just give you a very practical homework application item you can take home with you this week. I want you to, to scroll through the stories that are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just pick one. Like, if you're going to do something from the Sermon on the Mount, that's two whole chapters in Matthew. Don't, don't pick the whole Sermon on the Mount. Just pick part of it. Or maybe find a story like we read today in John 8. This very concise interaction. We see Jesus so beautiful. It's amazing that so much life can be packed into 11, 12 verses. Find a story that is about Jesus. And I want you to read it once tonight. Just once through. And, and kind of begin to, to prepare yourself. You're going to carry it around this week. And then tomorrow, I want you to read it again. Maybe twice tomorrow. And so read the story once tonight. Read it a couple times tomorrow. Again, we're focusing on nice little chunks of scripture here. Because we don't want to overwhelm you. And going beyond reading it, I just want you to meditate on the story. Now, for some of you, this again, getting into things you probably have to practice, but... You've used your imagination before. You've read a book and, and envisioned what the characters look like. You've envisioned the action taking place. I don't know why we turn our imaginations off when we approach Scripture. God is wanting to sanctify and use your imagination the same way. These are stories. God didn't give us a bunch of laws about how to live for Him. He said, here, this is who I am. And He communicates to us in a story. And so use your imagination. Envision yourself in the story. Place yourself in the, in the perspective of one of the characters. It's usually safe not to do Jesus in these stories. Rarely when we read these stories are we in the place of Jesus, just to clear that up. Identify yourself. And then, so, tomorrow you're going to read it a couple times. And then the next day, read it a couple more times. Think about, contemplate who this Jesus is, who he's showing himself to be. Because so often, guys, our failures in holiness, our failures to follow Jesus, are not because we don't know we should read and pray, or we should read our Bibles and pray. Right? Everybody who is a Christian for any amount of time knows that. Even some of you that aren't Christians here are like, yeah, you guys are supposed to be doing that. What if this week we were just to take a focused effort to say, Jesus, show me who you are? And I invite you to make that your prayer as you approach the scripture each, each time. Jesus, just show me. Show me who you are. Help me to live more like you. This is holiness, guys. Be like Jesus. This is what Lewis says again. He says, God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least. 
In your present attempts to be good, or even in your present failures, each time you fall, he will pick you up again. And he knows perfectly well that your own efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. On the other hand, you must realize from the outset that the goal towards which he is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. And no power in the whole universe except you yourself can prevent him from taking you to that point. It's uh, If you've read, how many of you have seen the, uh, the stage production of Play Miz? Have you seen the movie? Yes. Allow me to be a snob for a second. The book is better. And so in the, in the book, the, the character that played the, the bishop that we see on the stage and the screen is, is a guy named Monsignor Bienvenue. And I don't want to ruin the whole story because Man, it's, it's so good. But the, there's a, a man named Jean Valjean. He's a criminal. And he's been released from prison. But he bears the black mark of being a criminal for the rest of his life. So he can't find honest work. He, he struggles uh, trying to find food for himself. And just to provide shelter for himself. And so oftentimes, what begins to happen when there's so much of this sort of societal uh, scapegoating and, and black marks, he, he doesn't really know what else to do. And so he stumbles into the house of this man, Monsignor, who's a bishop. Uh, the backstory of this bishop in the book is incredible. But the bishop welcomes him in, and Jean Valjean stays the evening with him. But Jean Valjean, knowing that he can't find work, that he can't provide for himself, is not really sure what his next move is. But he does see some very, very expensive silverware, plateware in the house of the bishop. And so this bishop who has lavished his kindness upon Jean Valjean. Now Jean Valjean sees his stuff and he, he concocts a scheme and he plans to take it. And the, the night that Jean Valjean saves him, he pockets a couple of things and he makes off with it. He leaves in the middle of the night because he's ashamed. He can't face the bishop again. And he makes his way out of the town and he's apprehended by the police. And so he's caught with this stuff. Now the police know his record. They know he can't possibly uh, have access to this stuff. And so they take him back to the bishop's house where he had saved. John Valjean knows the verdict is written in stone. He knows what he's walking back into. He knows that the bishop is going to say, yeah, you took my stuff, now you go back to prison. Go back to hard labor. And Jean Valjean is brought before the bishop with the stuff. The bishop, this most beautiful, shining figure, says to Jean Valjean, my friend, you forgot the candlesticks. And as the police depart, and as Jean Valjean is left all alone with the bishop, the bishop says to him, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your very soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. This is who Jesus is. This is his holiness exercise uh, put before us. And as we wrap up today, let's consider our story again. This woman is dragged before Jesus. Her private sin has become public shame. She's half naked, afraid, and she is guilty. The prescription of the law is clear. She is to die. And Jesus, holy, beautiful, and pure, kneels down before her, and he writes in the dust. 
He pronounces the sentence over her, which is really a judgment upon the whole scene. Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. Though it seems Jesus is at the mercy of the law, he shows the law is at his mercy, and his mercy is boundless. But Jesus doesn't stop there. God is not just telling us what he's like. He's showing us what he's like. You see, Jesus himself will be dragged, half naked, afraid, though he is innocent. And he'll be no pawn in the schemes of humanity. He will willingly lay down his life, emptying himself completely. Jesus, holy, beautiful, and pure, he will wear all of our adulteries, all of our idolatries, all of our evil schemes that would try to remove God from his throne. He will wear them all on a cross. And once again, he will dirty his hands to pronounce us innocent, but this time he will not be with the dirt of the earth, but with the blood of his pierced hands. And once again, he will ask, Woman, where are your accusers? As he defiantly asks in his resurrection, Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? Once again, we are able to hear Jesus is holy. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forth. As we approach the table today, I want to invite you to contemplate the beauty of Jesus in this story. I want you to place yourself in this story. We are all those, like the men, who scheme to bring this woman before Jesus. We have all treated God this way, tried to use him for our own ends, or tried to be rid of him completely. The table is the place where we hear God's forgiveness pronounced over us anew, and we are moving towards his calling in the world to be agents of his mercy, to walk the world as the pardon of God. We are all the woman. Poor Jesus, hearing his mercy lavished upon us because he has taken our sin upon himself on the cross. And just as he speaks new life to her, he beckons us all, go and sin no more. Be holy, dry Let's pray, Jesus. Merciful God, Lord, you are holy. Lord, and often we have mistaken what it means for you to be holy. Lord, we live with our own ideas and estimates of what holiness is, but when we see it, God, when it's lavished upon us, Lord, it stops us in our tracks, we remove our, our shoes, God, would you help us to see your holiness here this morning, and to find ourselves, too, not condemned, not as people who, who have been told over and over again that God is mad at us, Lord, but to see that you aren't mad at us. Lord, to see that you are calling us towards a better way, towards a better path, and that way is with you, following you. Lord God, may we behold your mercy today. May we behold your holiness, your beauty, your truth. Father, as we approach this table, we hear words of forgiveness spoken over us, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Would you make us like you? We want to be holy as you are holy. It's in your name we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, I invite the ushers to pass the elements, the bread, the stands of Jesus' body broken for us, the blood 
presence with it. The juice His blood poured out for us. And as you take that, let those be physical manifestations of God's mercy. The fact that we can pass trays this morning is God inviting us to hear His words spoken anew. Neither do I have it. Go and sin no 